Welcome to Free Speech Nation, the podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. I'm thrilled to welcome my guest for this week, Brendan O'Neill, who is the editor of Spiked Online magazine and also the host of The Brendan O'Neill Show, which is a podcast for Spiked. He's also the author of two collections of essays, A Duty to Offend and Anti-Woke. Thanks for joining me, Brendan. I really appreciate it. Um, I just want to ask you first about Spiked magazine, in case uh, some of my listeners aren't familiar with it. What, what would you say are the magazine's core values? So Spiked is a daily magazine. We publish loads of articles every day and essays every week. And our core values, we're pro-enlightenment, pro-freedom of speech. We're in favour of progress. We're in favour of growth. We consider ourselves left-wing. Lots of people tell us we're right-wing. That's always a little bit confusing. Um, we're massively in favour of democracy. I guess we'd call ourselves radical Democrats. We want people to be free to express themselves as much as possible and free to determine the fate of the country that they live in. So we're very pro-democracy, very pro-freedom. We're against eco-miserabilism. We're against cancel culture. We're against identity politics. And we want to push a more enlightened form of politics. So I should uh, just full disclosure, of course, uh, before coming to GB News, I was a columnist at Spike. I've written a lot for Spike magazine and I really I really support what it is you do. Um, I think it's really interesting that you mentioned there that, that the magazine is a, a left wing publication in that in that traditional sense. But of course, with the culture wars, it does feel a lot like left and right doesn't really mean anything anymore. They're kind of that's kind of a, a, almost a kind of politically obsolete uh, conflict. Um, would you agree with that? And if so, what, what can we do to make things clearer? Yeah, I think those terms have become increasingly meaningless. I mean, I've had many a drunk argument where I've insisted I'm a lefty, I'm, I'm a Trotskyist, and, but it's kind of a waste of time because these things don't really mean what they used to mean. I mean, left and right were the terms that people defined themselves through for many, many decades. You know, in terms of where you worked, who you hung out with, what your political uh, views were, how you were likely to vote. You know, the terms left and right since the French Revolution onwards had an extraordinary impact on almost every aspect of life. But that has withered away a lot over the past few years, particularly since the end of the Cold War, the collapse of that global divide between the supposed free West and the evil empire, all that led to a corrosion of the ideas of left and right. And I think we have new divides today, new divides which can be a lot more clarifying in terms of working out where one stands. You know, are you in favour of freedom or are you in favour of cancel culture? Uh, do you believe in universal values or are you more into identity politics? Are you an authoritarian or are you a, a, a liberal or a libertine? So, there are new dividing lines, which I think are more useful for working out where we stand and where other people stand. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. My, my problem, I suppose, is that so many people within uh, current disputes and debates re refuse to, uh, to shift in terms of their labels. They still uh, c consider things either left-wing or right-wing, which are usually n neither of the kind. You know, if you take um, the, a lot of people who self-identify as left, I don't consider left at all because they're just obsessed with identity politics and they have no interest at all in, in class, for instance. And yet they would still say uh, announcing your pronouns shows that you're left wing, for instance, when, of course, that's not that's a, a very kind of, that's not something that is really going to affect people in the red wall or in uh, working class communities. I don't think they really even care about that kind of thing. 
Absolutely. I mean, a lot of what gets promoted as left wing these days, I don't recognize it as left wing at all in any way imaginable. I mean, this goes most obviously for identity politics. You know, the, the left wing politics I grew up with and which I was very in favor of when I was a young person, that was about uh, universal, the universalism of class. You know, what bound people together was the question of what class you belong to. It didn't matter if you were black or white or male or female or gay or straight. If you belong to the working class, there was an element of solidarity. You could pull together. You could fight together. You could use your clout to improve your working conditions or improve your influence on the country. You know, class was the great unifying force on the left for so long. And what's happened with the people who call themselves left wing today they either completely ignore class or even worse, they turn it into a mere intersection in relation to all the other identities. So sometimes I'll say to identitarian leftists, I'll say, listen, you guys never talk about class and that's a real problem. And they'll say, yes, we do. Class is part of the intersection with race and gender and, and trans identity and so on. And I always think they've achieved something even more powerful than Margaret Thatcher in terms of destroying class politics because when you reduce class which I think is probably the most important facet of a person's life when you reduce class to just something that intersects with loads of other things you really demote its importance and you uh, uh, elevate the importance of other identities above it so they have uh, really relegated class they, they don't really care about working class people and in fact What's happened with the contemporary left is that they are now actively hostile to working class people. They call them gammon. They think they're insufficiently educated. They think they're stupid oafs who voted for Brexit when they really should have voted to remain. They have this incredibly contemptuous view of ordinary working people. So we have a left today that has not only lost touch with the working classes, but now views them with contempt. Yeah, I've even heard critical race theorists make the claim that if you say that class is the most uh, important factor when it comes to privilege, for instance, in other words, the richer you are, the more privileged you are, that that in itself is a way to perpetuate white supremacy. So what do you make of that kind of argument? That many times, too. I've heard, uh, you know, they, they call it economic reductionism or class reductionism. You know, how dare you focus on class to the exclusion of other issues? And, and they do now openly argue that it's a signifier for racism. If you talk about class, you're probably a bit racist. And if you look at the way in which any discussion of the white working class, for example, that is immediately pounced upon as proof that you must be a racist person. Why are you talking about white working class people? Don't you know that other people can be working class as well? Well, yes, thanks very much. I do know that. I, I grew up in a working class part of London. I know the diversity of the working classes. The reason some of us talk about the white working class is because they are one of the most demonised communities in the country. They are the ones who are often singled out for the most opprobrium, you know, in terms of um, their stupidity, unhealthiness, uh, feckless children, useless parents. Uh, they vote in a stupid way if they can be asked to vote at all. You know, that, that view of the white working class has been around for a long time. So it's I think it's worth defending the white working classes against those kinds of uh, slurs. Uh, but, you know, the, the problem, of course, is that almost everything can be called racist these days. You know, uh, uh, criticise Islam and you're a racist. Question mass immigration and you're, of course, a fascist. 
Uh, and it, it now we've now reached a situation where if you talk about class politics, if you say class is more important than race because it unifies people from different races, then you're also a racist. So the way in which that term is used to limit what people are allowed to, to say and to demonise those who dare to transgress contemporary orthodoxy, that's really worrying. Well, if I were being cynical, I might even say that this strategy of uh, dismissing someone as racist if they raise the issue of class, that that in of itself is a, is a way to kind of preserve the status quo and that it is a kind of, uh, it is a kind of middle class strategy. But, but to what, maybe that's unfair. I mean, to, to what extent do you think this is, this is a, a, a tactic or do, do you think it is just a kind of generally well-intentioned uh, delusion, I suppose? No, I think it's, uh, I've always seen identity politics as being a very close cousin of neoliberalism. I think it's, it's a capitalist endeavour in terms of, uh, it's all about, it has a strong element of consumerism, it has a strong component of social media posturing, um, and, and that's why the corporate elites and the capitalist elites are fully in favour of identity politics. They absolutely love this stuff. If you look at the way in which someone like Robin DiAngelo, for example, the, the author of White Fragility, she's been basically called upon by numerous capitalist bosses in the United States to re-educate their workforces, to, to force white workers in particular to have a reckoning with their internal racism and to uh, uh, tell black workers that you can't really trust your white colleagues because they're all, they all have these inherited privileges and, and these inherited biases. You know, this is not a conspiracy. They didn't all sit down and, said, and say, let's use identity politics to divide and rule. No. But, I, but identity politics lends itself beautifully to that because it is a very divisive force and it does divide people along racial lines in particular. And if people who run workplaces spy in that a useful device for controlling the workforce, we shouldn't be surprised at all. So what you're saying, I suppose, is that it's something that is open to exploitation by nefarious actors, but that a lot of the activists might genuinely believe that what they're doing is for the good. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. I think they might. Uh, and I think many of them do, to be generous. They do think that they think that they are being anti-racist. I think that's the great mistake they make. And um, I'm open to the idea that they really do want to be anti-racist. But, you know, to use one of their own phrases, educate yourself, because... If you obsess over race and if you categorise people by their skin colour and if you tell whites and blacks in particular that you will never really understand each other because you have such different experiences, then you are grating against the universalising dynamic of class politics and you are grating against the ability of people to pull together as a community to transform things for the better. So... I do. I think a lot of them do see themselves as being the heirs to the anti-racism of the 1950s and 60s. But the way I understand it is that they are usurping the anti-racist achievements of the 1950s and 60s because the, the old emphasis on character over colour is now being replaced with an obsession with colour and an obsession with policing relationships between the races. It is incredibly regressive. So with all this in mind, do you still hang on to the label left wing or or Trotskyist or Marxist or whatever? Do, do you still, even though all these definitions are changing all around you, are you going to hold fast to that, do you think? It, it kind of depends what mood I'm in, I suppose, or who I'm talking to. I don't mean to sound like I'm a chameleon or anything like that, but uh, I think 
left-wing values, I, I think the left was the best thing that ever happened to modern politics. That's my view. I think it's gone horribly wrong, and it has been going horribly wrong for a pretty long time, to be honest. But the left was an inc- left-wing politics was an incredibly good idea because this was an idea which essentially said uh, ordinary working people don't have enough say in political life and we need to transform that. You go right back to the levellers in the Civil War, in the English Civil War in the 1640s. These were really the first radicals and their argument was that all men should have the right to involve themselves in political life. You go to the Chartists in the 1800s, the, the movement for the right of working class men to vote, right through to the suffragettes, of course, which included a large number of working class women uh, and other movements. These were movements, these were leftish movements that were designed to, infl- to, to, to uh, grow the impact of working people on political life, to involve more voices in politics. And that is a very good thing. So the achievements they made, I think, are very valuable. What's The problem is that they've lost their way over the past 30 or 40 years in particular. And as part of that process of losing their way, losing touch with the ideals of democracy and uh, economic power, the two ideals that uh, really motivated the left when it first started, Having lost touch with those two ideals, they've kind of sunk into the cesspit of identity politics, of um, uh, trusting the state more than working people, of uh, worshipping experts and demonising ordinary voters. All these things have uh, really gripped the left and turned it into an elitist movement. But in terms of how I define myself, you know, the thing I often say about someone like Karl Marx, I often say I preferred their earlier stuff, you know, the kind of thing people say about rock bands. Uh, When it comes to left-wing politics, I like the early stuff. The late stuff, I don't like at all. I do still call myself a Trotskyist every now and then, only because Trotsky said, I think, the most important thing that any left-wing radical has ever said. He said that the, the purpose of progressive politics is to uh, limit the control of man over man and expand the control of man over nature. And that really uh, sums up my political view. My political view is that man should not control man, but man should control nature. And I think that that's got to be the starting point of a properly progressive politics. Yeah, I think that's very clear. And it, it, it's, it strikes me that the people who call you right wing and publications such as The Guardian, which is uh, called spiked hard right, I think, far right, all these ridiculous phrases. And you very eloquently uh, countered that in a letter to them, which I thought was fantastic, because I just think it's now just become a way to uh, basically dismiss someone else's point of view and to not have to engage in it. I mean, I don't even think The Guardian is left wing at all. I think it's, you know, I mean, for one thing, it's, it's two pound a day, whereas Spiked is free. I would say Spiked is much further to the left than The Guardian is. But um, so it's funny to me that they, they come in with this. So is it just a slur for them? I think it, it, I think it is a slur. I, I think they, some of them probably also believe it. You know, I think they, the more that the left has become cut off from ordinary people and rational debate, the more it has gone down these rabbit holes of seeing fascism and racism everywhere. So I think some of them, quite scarily, probably believe that Spiked is a hard-right publication. You know, because, of course, the fascists loved freedom of speech, didn't they? They, did. they loved freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, 
the right of women to be equal to men. Uh, uh, you know, defend- that was Mussolini's thing, right? That's yeah, right. That's they about. loved all that stuff, <laughs> or you know, defending Jews from anti-Semitism, which the spite has done a lot, uh, a great deal of over the past ten years. It, it, it's so preposterous. It's so completely preposterous, and you know, it really was brought home to me when I was on. Uh, uh, I went to a pro-Remain demonstration, one of those People's Votes demonstrations that took place, where the you know. Thousands of weeping middle classes descending from North London into central London to moan about democracy. And I went to one to observe it and someone cornered me there and was recognised me and was basically shouting in my face and saying, oh, you fascists that spike, we hate you. And I thought, hold on, you're here as part of a mob that wants to prevent the enactment of the largest democratic vote in the history of this country. And you have the gall to call me far right. And it really brought home just how ridiculous a lot of these accusations are. We've now reached the situation where if you believe in absolute freedom of speech, as I do, and if you trust ordinary people more than experts in in terms of making good political decisions, those have now become signifiers of far-right politics, and that makes no sense at all. So how do you deal with situations like that? Because, you, you know, you, you're often in debates, you're often in public events, and you must have quite a few of these kind of people who have decided that you're something that you're not. And these aren't people, I, I suggest, these aren't people you can reason with. How, how do you find those sort of situations? Yeah, it's really difficult to reason with them. And um, sometimes it's not even worth trying. And, and it's becoming more difficult over time. You, I'm sure you've had this experience too. I, I often think, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, you could have had an, a, a pretty open, honest, rational public discussion about hate speech. Should hate speech be free speech? That was a perfectly legitimate thing to talk about. I talked about it a lot. I did panel discussions on it and media discussions. It was a, it was legitimate to talk about the bounds of freedom of speech and what it was right to say and not right to say and all those kinds of things. If you had that kind of debate now, people would try to shut it down to start off, especially if it was taking place on a university campus. They would publish articles saying, how dare we invite these fascists to come to our uh, place of work or our campus or our local community hall to talk about defending racism and defending misogyny and so on. And it would just not be tolerated. It's the vitriolic intolerance of our times that I find most scary, where it actually becomes difficult to have open discussions about freedom of speech, about our beliefs and about where society should be going. So it's becoming more and more difficult. And when I go and speak on university campuses, which I do less of now because it has become so hostile, and, you know, there's a group of protesters and they're holding up placards saying, uh, you know, Brendan O'Neill is a homophobe or a hate speaker or a transphobe or whatever else they're saying. It's difficult to know what to do about that. It's difficult to know how to engage with that or where to start with that. And the last time it happened to me at Oxford University, I tried to engage with the protesters. I went outside to talk to them and they all basically were crying and and shouting and screaming. You know, they couldn't possibly talk to someone as evil as me. So there's no 
common ground. There is no, there's not, there, that common ground of at least wanting to have an honest discussion, that has fallen away and that makes it really difficult to engage on these difficult subjects. So I do want to ask you about that because that's something that concerns me a great deal. I'm, I'm always uh, trying to prioritise the idea that I can talk to people I disagree with, get people in a room, have the adult conversation, have the disagreement without mudslinging and and, and, and hysteria and all the rest of it. But it, it, I'm, I'm with you. It's got to the point where it feels like we have to almost give up on certain people, and I don't like to, but is it not the case that there are just some people who we have to say, look, they're not capable of having rational debates, so let's not even try, or is that just defeatist? No, I don't think that is defeatist. I think that is, I think it, it, that is certainly true of quite a few people these days, particularly a certain kind of activist. Uh, kind of identitarian activists would definitely be very difficult to have a, a, a proper rational discussion with. Yeah, and online especially, I think. Yes, absolutely. But beyond that, there are other people who are persuadable and who are listening, even if we don't know that they're listening, and who do want, sometimes who, who do want to be persuaded in our direction, yeah. the direction of freedom of speech and rationalism and reason and enlightenment. They are out there, but they, so take, for example, university campuses. The people we hear about all the time because they're very noisy, they're often very well connected, they're quite middle class, and in fact, very plummy. The, the number of plummy, posh, Oxford and Durham and Cambridge students I've met who claim to be oppressed and who want to shut everyone down. It is absolutely hysterical. And, and these people know how to play the game. They know how to get into the local newspaper. They know how to get a column in The Guardian. They know how to turn Twitter on to their, their beliefs, which is that everyone who's offensive should be closed down. Um, they're very noisy and very influential, but there are, there's a swathe of students out there who don't go along with this. Many of them just keep quiet and get on with their degree. But there are others who are waiting to be persuaded by people who have a more rational view of the world. And so uh, even though I, I, I share your pessimism about engaging with some kinds of activists, I think it's become pointless. I think there, is, there are other people out there who can be won over to the more reasoned side. And if we do that, we can really boost the level of public discussion. I, I think that's absolutely right. I think it's just that I don't have the energy or the actually the ability to effectively de-radicalise someone, you know, when someone is so caught up in a fantasy. And I think this is, this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with what I think is a kind of pseudo-reality that is being projected by this, what we might call the, the critical social justice movement or the identitarian left or whatever we want to call it, is that it is so often grounded in non-reality. I mean, if you take the JK Rowling thing, whenever I argue with people about JK Rowling who, and people have decided she's a transphobic monster, they can never quote anything transphobic she's said. Uh, similarly, you'll have people say that Oxford University is systemically racist. And then you can present the data that shows the reverse is true and that actually you'll never, you won't find anywhere less racist than Ox Oxford University, but they won't relinquish that faith that they have in, in the systemic racism of the university, of the institution. So when, when people are just simply putting up a brick wall to facts, to research, to data, to, to anything like that, um, they're, they're lost in a fantasy. I mean, isn't that what it is? It's effectively one, one half of the debate is dealing with reality and the other with, with dreams. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it has become increasingly difficult to disabuse these people of the, of, of the views that they hold, many of which are not founded in facts or, or reality. And that's because it's become almost like a religious conviction. It's very dogmatic. And the danger of dogma, of course, is, is that it is pretty impervious to uh, rational 
challenge and, and, and scrutiny, that's always struck me as one of the dangers of, of the politics of the safe space. If you go into a safe space, which essentially means never being challenged on your ideas, never being called out, never being confronted with someone who thinks differently to you, the danger of the safe space, I mean, it harms the person inside the safe space even more than it does those who, who are no platformed or excluded, because it turns them into dogmatists. They never test out their ideas. And in fact, testing out their ideas becomes the scariest thing you could ever do. It would erase them, it would harm their self-esteem, it would damage their identity. They could never possibly do it. So they never learn, they never enjoy the freedom to change your mind. They never expand their horizons or correct their thoughts or, or whatever else they, that you might do if you subjected your beliefs to public discussion and public challenge. So there's a dogmatism to all of this, which makes it very difficult to challenge. And I think the JK Rowling thing is a perfect example of that. In fact, the trans issue more broadly, sadly, is a perfect example of that. Because what we have here, in my view, is a fantasy world, a fantasy world in which reality is completely discounted. You can be any sex you want, regardless of what genitalia you have or regardless of the fact of your birth and the fact of what puberty you went through and the fact of your chromosomes. None of that matters. All that matters is the, the your self-conviction that you are actually something else and, the, and forcing everyone else to genuflect before your self-belief. That's what they demand. And what we end up with is that we are people are being compelled to lie. We are being compelled to say things that we don't believe are true. Mm. For example, that a man can become a woman or that someone with a penis is literally a woman. That's what we're increasingly being compelled to say. And what J.K. Rowling has done, which I think is incredibly heroic, is that she has refused to lie. She has refused to bow to this Orwellian pressure to say something that she knows is not true. And that's really admirable. And I think that's something uh, lots more people should be doing. Well, let me give you an example. So I, ju I just uh, I had a tweet yesterday and I know you should never base anything on what, what people say on social media because you can always find the most extremes. But this is a common refrain that I hear uh, quite a lot. And this is uh, so, uh, an activist who's saying that gender critical views, she's talking about gender critical, she says, we all know what gender critical views are. Je they want the total worldwide and final elimination of trans people. They are a genocidal cult. Now, I'd like to think that was par parody or satire, but it isn't. And I hear that sort of thing a lot. Now, so wh where, <laughs> where would you, is that just a strategy or uh, can they believe that? I think they can, actually. That's the terrifying thing, because... And I think it's a function of the politics of victimhood. You know, when you convince yourself that you are a victim, and when it actually becomes quite fashionable to be a victim, it becomes fashionable to be oppressed, you're constantly looking for signs of oppression. And everything can be oppression. Someone writing a newspaper article, J.K. Rowling writing a very, very considered and rational essay about the problem of trans politics, that can be oppression. It's speech, ideas, disagreement, all of this become uh, tools of oppression in the mind of those who, who want to be oppressed, who long to be oppressed. And I think it grows and grows and grows and it becomes a bit of a conspiracy theory among some of these activists. And they do start to think that the world is out to get them, that there is a genocide around the corner. That, and I often think about these identitarian activists, you know, whether they see, they're seeing transphobia everywhere or Islamophobia or racism. They see all these prejudices lurking in every nook and cranny of society. 
I just think what a miserable life it must be to, to go outside your front door every day and to think that the people you walk past are probably horrible, hateful fascists, that they don't understand you, they're all a bit thick, they're probably prejudiced, that, you know, the country's full of xenophobes and transphobes and homophobes. It must be a really depressing existence. And I think it does a, a snowball over time and it does become this uh, incredibly victimology idea which says... Um, if I hear another critical idea, if I hear another critical challenge, that's proof that this world wants to destroy my people. And that, I think, really demonstrates the, the irrationality of victim politics and the problem of pushing aside autonomy and self-confidence and replacing it with this cult of fragility that sees everything as a challenge to one's existence. Is it also to do with rhetoric and to do with the degradation of language generally, or at least political discourse, say? I mean, the first time I heard that phrase, erasure, I'm not, I don't mean the 80s band, I mean the, the idea of uh, erasing someone's existence through degradation of their identity, was about seven years ago at the Edinburgh Fringe, I was talking to a drag queen who started talking about the problem of bisexual erasure. And I just, I, I didn't understand what this person meant. I was thinking, who's trying to erase bisexuals? That I, don't, I don't understand what, what that means. But when you have such alarmist, almost hysterical uh, language like that, then does that seep into the consciousness or does it just mean that people aren't capable of, of discussing these things sensibly anymore? Yeah, I think the, I've always found the discussion about biphobia really weird. I, you know, who goes around saying, oh God, I really hate bisexual people? I've, I've never met anyone like that. <laughs> never, ever. I don't think that's a real thing in any way whatsoever. Um, but I think, yes, the degradation of language and the, the hollowing out of what words actually mean, I think that's an important part of this whole process. And, you know, the war on language, in fact, is really important in relation to all of this. I think one of the the most important and problematic aspects of, of woke politics, for, for want of a better description, is um, the, the way in which they want to control language. Because as Orwell knew very well, if you control language, you can control how people think. And that's why I think on the trans issue in particular, the way in which, you know, words like mother and father are sometimes problematized and uh, breastfeeding is replaced with chest feeding and all these other uh, weird anti-human phrases which are largely designed to push aside any mention of the horrible w word woman you know never say the word woman i mean talk about erasure the erasure of uh, of the word woman and and words associated with woman that's the, that's the real problem here but i think what motors a lot of this desire to control language is an attempt to change how people think especially how the younger generation thinks because if the younger generation can successfully be made to think that it's bad to say mother and father and, and gender is really fluid and you can be any sex you want, then you can really transform how they relate to not only themselves, but to their families, to their own parents, to their communities, to the future. It, I think it has a really detrimental impact on how they understand the world and their place in it. So yes, the, the degradation of language, the, the policing of language and the use of words like genocide or erasure to describe actually just a form of disagreement, that's a real problem. And I think it suggests that one of the things people like us should be doing is defending the meaning of words and standing up for, uh, you know, the, the use of reasoned language in all these kinds of discussions. I think that's so important. This, because it's not just it's not just that, it's also the continual redefinition of words that we thought we understood but they will deny that they are redefining the words at the same time. So, you know, and that 
even as we've been talking about left and right, those things have become re, uh, redefined. Words relating to gender, as you say, so they will say, um, well, they is always used as a singular uh, a pronoun and everyone understands that. Well, no, they don't. Most people, when you try, if you use they as a singular pronoun, they won't understand what you mean or they'll take a while to figure it out. And actually, there's something about educating everyone and all young people to a standard of, of, of the language because it puts us all on a level playing field and it, and it stops because I find so much of the debates that you have with social justice activists is that is you have to navigate the wordplay before you can get to any kind of debate, basically. Oh, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to tear down layers and layers of mystifying terminology just to get to some kind of common ground where you might understand what one what we what we're talking about. Yeah, that's one of the problems. I think one of the problems today is that everyone's talking at cross purposes. It's like people are speaking different languages. And especially if you reject the eccentric top-down language of woke politics, the, the, the reordering of gender language, the reordering of the discussion about sex, um, the way in which things are refashioned as phobic simply because they might be a little bit controversial or a little bit difficult. All of this means that it, it can be very difficult to have an honest discussion. And I think um, the trans issue highlights that probably better than any other issue. But there are other examples too, where people are called out for making jokes, for using words in a particular context. The context is very often ignored. And, and all of this demonstrates that language itself has become one of the key battle, battlegrounds of our time. And, and by that, I mean the, the right of people to use common language and to use words in the way that they see fit and to use them in, in different ways, in different contexts. All of those things, which were key parts of human communication for a very long time, are under explicit assault by a, a kind of new woke elite that wants to control how we speak and then in turn how we think. Uh, pushing back against that is incredibly important. And it also makes it very hard to criticise these people because they'll, they'll change the meanings of words in such a way, in quite a cunning way. So they'll say things like, uh, oh, you've used that phrase, say white working class or something. That's a dog whistle for fascism. They often use this idea of dog whistling and they will say that um, the, the, the words you're saying, in other words, they will, they will make it so that it is difficult to use the words that would, would effectively critique them. So another example would be the fact that for a long time, these activists referred them to themselves as woke. And so then we had a word to describe these activists, oh, well, that's the woke movement. And then they claimed, We've never described ourselves as woke. That's just a word that's been invented by the right as a slur. So therefore, anyone who uses the word woke can just be dismissed as a, a right-wing culture warrior. So again, so it, it's like trying to fight an invisible enemy because we haven't got a phrase that we can... I mean, even in this conversation, we've been saying, what do we call the, the, the woke movement or social justice movement or identitarian left, even though they're not left? You, do you see what I mean? I think they are destabilizing the terms with which we could effectively scrutinize them. Absolutely. I think that's one of the, and in fact, that's one of their key achievements. I think they've actually been very successful at that in, in their world, in, in, on their own terms and in political life more broadly. I mean, I'm, I'm often shocked by the reluctance of uh, Boris Johnson's government to, to push back a bit harder against some of this stuff. And I think that's partly because they feel, rightly, that they will be called all these names and, and depicted in this way if they dare to criticise some of these oh, uh, the, ex, uh, well, the excesses of woke politics. That's a very specific uh, example of what I'm talking about because whenever the Tory government, who I think have been woeful at this, and I don't think they've done anywhere near enough to deal with the threat of, of, of uh, whatever we want to call the movement, 
um, is that the, for instance, in the Guardian, you'll constantly read articles about how this is the Tories' culture war, and whenever the Tories in any way attempt to respond to what the culture warriors are doing, they will say that the Tories have invented the culture war, and that this this is that's an impossible situation, I think. Yeah, I think one of the one of the main ways in which they limit our ability to argue with them and to criticise them and to hold them to account is by constantly accusing uh, the people who disagree with them of launching a culture war. It's never the left who are the culture warriors. It's always the people who criticise what they're doing, which I think gets things completely the wrong way round. The culture war primarily comes from those who wrongly, in my view, describe themselves as left-wing, from those who consider themselves on the progressive side of politics, even though I don't think they're progressive at all. That is primarily where the culture war comes from. And what you have today is this extraordinary situation where those kinds of people will launch culture wars all the time. They will launch culture wars against language, against family ideals, against the uh, British history, against the idea of uh, that the Britain is not a particularly racist country. They're launching culture wars all the time. They will say, you have to accept that there are 72 genders. You have to accept that Britain is a horrible racist country. You have to accept that empire infuses everything we do. You have to accept all these things. And then if one person says, hold on, I'm not sure about this, they'll say, how dare you launch a culture war? So that's become one of the key ways in which they hold back any form of criticism or dissent by branding people who criticise them as the culture warriors. It is pure doublespeak because they are the culture warriors and some of us at least, I would include you and me in this, we're the ones who want to actually put a halt to the culture war in in preference for a, a better, more rational form of politics. But we are branded culture warriors the minute we say to these people hold on i think you're wrong whereas of course we want this we we are trying to hasten the demise of the culture war that's the that's the point i I mean i i think that i can think of no publication more than the guardian that has done more to stoke uh, the culture war and I, i yeah i think i think you're absolutely right about this it is it is a tactic i think the same goes for the idea of of cancel culture you know uh we often are told uh, are assured by these groups that there is no such thing as cancel culture. And then, you know, every other week there's an example of cancel culture and they still say, no, but there's no such thing uh, as, as this thing that we can all see is happening. I mean, that's, I mean, they gave us a word for this, didn't they? Which is gaslighting. This is exactly what this is. So, uh, and again, I, I think cancel culture is actually uh, a major threat and it's often misunderstood, isn't it? Absolutely. And um, it's so ironic that they use the the woke left or whatever the hell they are. The the fact that they use the term gaslighting all the time is really striking because they are the biggest gaslighters of the modern era, particularly on the issue of cancel culture, which they will always say is a myth. It doesn't exist. They'll always say, you know, look at J.K. Rowling. She hasn't been cancelled. Well, no, because she's uncancellable. She's incredibly wealthy. She's one of the most important cultural figures this country has produced over the past 30 years, she's she's not going to be cancelled. It's not possible, which, by the way, is what drives them completely mad. They can't believe that this uppity woman, this witch, this turf who says things that they find disagreeable, they can't believe that they cannot cancel her. And, and that really drives them mad. But what I think what they miss about cancel culture, firstly, cancel culture is terrible, whoever it targets. I don't care if it's a billionaire like J.K. Rowling 
or that granddad at Asda who was sacked for posting a Billy Colony skit about Islam on his Facebook page. To me, it makes no difference if you're rich or working class. You should not be punished and publicly humiliated for your views or for your jokes or for your convictions. And so it's it's wrong all the time. But the thing they I think the point they miss about cancel culture, probably willfully, is that even though some of the targets of it can rise above it, you know, they will get a newspaper column somewhere else or they'll speak at a different university or, or you know, they, they might lose some work in one area, but they might gain work in another area. It's true that that happens to some of the more high profile cases of cancel culture. But the problem with cancel culture is the chilling effect it has on society more broadly. So imagine if you are a trans sceptical woman you might have a precarious job, you might have a low paid job, you might work low down in the publishing industry or whatever it might be. And you see what happens to J.K. Rowling. You see that even a national, tre- a former national treasure like J.K. Rowling can be called the C word and threatened with death and threatened with rape on a daily basis simply for publishing a rational essay on trans politics. What do you do? You, you stop saying what you think is right. You, you keep your beliefs to yourself. You cancel yourself because you know that the risks are too great and the punishment is too harsh. So this is the problem with cancel culture is the high profile cases are in some ways the less important cases. What's more important is the self-cancellation it gives rise to and the chilling effect it has on public discussion more broadly. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I've so often had this experience as well of people I know, friends of mine who say to me in secret, you know, we agree with everything you're saying, but, but we would never say this. We can't ever say I even had to, genuinely a couple of days ago, a friend of mine said that she liked my tweet and had to unlike it because she thought that was too dangerous uh, to do that. So there's, there's, I mean, have you had this experience where there are people who are, who are close to you who, are, who, who, who won't even be open about their support for what you say? Oh, yes, uh, uh, often. And in fact, um, Tim Lott, I think it was Tim Lott, wrote a piece for The Guardian a few years ago saying that uh, reading Spiked was his kind of dirty secret. And he, he, was, he knew that there were other people who, for whom it was the little bit of a secret as well. So th- that does happen. I'm sure there are people out there who read what Spiked does and, and, and says, that's, that's sensible, but I'm not going to share this. I'm not going to tweet this. I'm not going to associate myself with this because it's too controversial. And I know that the consequences can often be quite severe. And I, I get emails from people or, or sometimes I meet people who will say, oh, I really agree with the stance you're taking on this and that, but I'm not going to say it. I mean, the perfect example of this, you know, not to go on too much about the trans issue, but there have been at least three occasions where I've been in a television situation and uh, I've said, let's talk about this trans issue that's in the news. And the, the woman I'm on with in those three different situations, three different women have said, oh, I completely agree, but I can't do this. I can't do this because I will be subjected for days on end to misogynistic abuse. And that is what would happen. That is absolutely what would happen if they were to say on TV, that they don't think trans women are women, right? They would be subjected to misogynistic, sexist, violent abuse for days on end. So, you know, understandably, they would rather not do it. And that's a real problem in society, is that there's this real problem that of, of self-censorship. I mean, there are many different forms of censorship. There's state censorship, of course, there's mob censorship, there's the informal pressure to conform, and all these 
different kinds of censorship that people have analysed over the decades. Uh, but I think that the most insidious form of censorship today is self-censorship. And that the spectacle of cancel culture, those big spectacles where someone is dragged down or humiliated or chased off campus for saying something bad, the problem with that is that it has this trickle-down effect of uh, it generating more and more self-censorship. And, you know, it, it makes me laugh when, when woke activists say, well, look at this poll, which shows that most women support trans rights and the rights of uh, trans women to go into female bathrooms, etc., etc. I always think, hold on, if they didn't support it, you would hound them for days. You would call them every name under the sun. You would try to get them sacked from their jobs. You would say that they are the scum of the earth. So maybe it's not surprising that larger numbers than we might expect express support, at least to opinion pollsters, for these kinds of political ideas. So that kind of intolerance, that woke pressure to bend the knee to identity politics, I think it has a chilling effect on freedom of thought and self-expression. Yeah, and, and similarly with the polls for the Brexit vote or for Donald Trump or, or, or even the last election in America, the polls were completely uh, wrong about this. If we lived in a society, uh, just imagine where everyone's just honest about what they think <laughs> without fear. Um, it would benefit absolutely everyone, including the identitarian left, I suppose, or maybe not. I, I think freedom of speech always benefits people, even if they don't realise it. And, uh, you know, the, the great benefit of freedom of speech is that it is the means through which we can work out what is right and wrong. I mean, that's all there is to it, essentially. How else, uh, you know, as John Stuart Mill said, how else can you know if you are right unless you subject your ideas to public discussion? Uh, you know, that's the Cardinal John Henry Newman said the human intellect does from opposition grow. You know, it's, it's by being opposed and challenged and criticised and questioned. That's how you expand your thinking and that's how society expands its thinking. That's the other thing that worries me about the, uh, the way in which anyone who dissents or, or raises a controversial idea or, or puts forward an unfashionable proposition, the way in which they are instantly pounced upon and demonised, I think that is bad for the individual and it's bad for society. Pretty much every freedom and comfort we enjoy is the gift of people who were willing to criticise the orthodoxies of their time. You know, it used to be an absolutely repugnant idea that a, a woman should have the right to vote. That would have horrified everyone. They'd be reaching for their smelling salts. How dare you suggest such a thing? Or the idea of, of a man having the right to sleep with another man. People would have stoned you to death or burnt you at the stake for even suggesting such a thing. Or the idea that, you know, the, the woman who cleans Richard Branson's office should have the exact same power as him on election day to decide who the next government should be. That would have been considered a preposterous idea 100 years ago, 200 years ago. But it was only through people exercising their freedom of speech and daring to suggest that actually these are good ideas, not bad ideas, and putting up with all the crap that they got for saying that and, and withstanding all that stuff... That's how these ideas eventually become more acceptable and eventually become institutionalised. So freedom of speech is intimately bound up with the progress of society and with the freedoms and comforts we all enjoy today. And it drives me mad when uh, younger activists in particular don't realise that their, their lovely lives are the product of people who risk their lives in order to expand freedom. So that's a very good example, the freedom of speech question in terms of why we have to 
hasten the end of this culture war because while you have this culture war raging, it's very difficult to defend free speech because there are so many prominent voices saying there is no free speech problem and just simply flat out denying uh, any kind of issue whatsoever. And uh, and then you can't have the discussion because, I mean, for, for example, uh, big tech censorship is obviously a problem, but you just hear these mantras of, well, they're private companies, they can do what they want. Uh, there is no issue. There's no free speech. Free speech doesn't mean freedom from consequences. You just get these slogans that are a means to sort of circumvent the problem. But there is a problem. I mean, would you agree with me on this about, about big tech in particular? Oh, absolutely. There's a very clear problem. And I think you're right that people use those those kinds of phrases and terms to to just to deny the idea that there is a free speech, a, a censorship problem. You know, this is censorship denialism. That's what it is. I really dislike the phrase, um, you know, freedom. You have freedom of speech, but there will be consequences. Now, <laughs> if, the, if, if the consequences are more speech, that's absolutely fine. If the consequences are criticism and even ridicule and people taking the mick, that's absolutely fine. I can live with that. But if the consequences are being no platformed or sacked from your job, or killed, which has happened in Europe over the past decade, then that's a problem. And I often think that, you know, this notion that uh, your free speech has consequences, that was essentially the mindset of the two guys who killed the Charlie Hebdo cartoonists. That's what they thought. They basically thought, okay, fine, you've got your free speech. Here come your consequences. It's such a chilling and repulsive idea, the way in which it's used as a threat against people who have supposedly... Uh, unfashionable views, but I think the it, it, I, I think the freedom of speech problem, the, the 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 big tech problem in particular, that is so clearly an issue of our time and one that we should take more seriously. I mean, r- right now the Taliban, a spokesman for the Taliban, can tweet to his heart's content, whereas Donald Trump has been banned from almost every social media platform, and there's a real problem with that because what it means is that unaccountable billionaires in Silicon Valley are deciding what we can and cannot say in the new public square. You know, the the internet, particularly social media, whether we like it or not, and I don't like it and tend not to use it, but it is the new public square. It is where people engage with each other, where politicians engage with us, where ideas are pushed around, where uh, people rally and campaign and try to win your support. This is where that happens. So the fact that people we've often very uh, never even heard of or nerds like Nick Clegg, you know, a failed British politician like Nick Clegg, who now uh, wields this extraordinary power over the global public square. That is absolutely terrifying. And I think what the libertarian right and the woke left have in common on this issue is that they both say the same thing, which is, well, this is a private company. They can do what they want. I'm sorry, they can't do what they want. Private companies, this is the lefty in me coming out, private companies very often cannot do what they want. So, for example, you can own a private company. You can't sack a woman just because she gets pregnant. The state prevents you from doing that because we recognise that's a bad thing to do. You can't refuse to employ someone because they're black. So these these are limitations. These are positive limitations on the property rights of the capitalist elites. And I thought progressives supported limitations on the property rights of of the capitalist elites. Maybe I was wrong. And I think uh, limiting their rights somehow, I don't know how to do this, but limiting their right to control public debate, to censor feminists who think that if you have a penis, you're a man, 
and to censor elected American presidents, finding a way to limit their authority to do that, I think, is one of the most important challenges of our time. And I'm with you. I've, I've no idea how that would be achieved. But I think I think it's not true, is it, that the woke left believe that private companies can do whatever they want? Because, for instance, they uh, they made sure that Parler was shut down pretty quickly because it, it wasn't going along with what they felt uh, was the right kind of limitations on speech. They don't they don't really believe it. What it, what it really means is uh, they feel that the uh, the big tech companies, Silicon Valley, are on their side ideologically. So they're perfectly happy for them to to censor at will. I think that's what's going on there. But then what do we what do we on a practical level, what do we actually do about this? And I know that the government has made some kind of overtures to um, ensuring that universities defend free speech. However, some free speech advocates would have a problem even with that because they don't want to see uh, government intervention on on campus to to uphold the principle. It feels almost contradictory. Where where do you stand on that and, and what we can actually do to change the culture so that free speech is upheld? Yeah, I think, well, that that phrase you've just used there is the most important, I think, changing the culture. And um, so I'm a little bit uncomfortable with what the government is proposing to do on university campuses, you know, using pressure to ensure that people uh, don't censor and don't know platform. Uh, I mean, I don't want to go overboard in criticising it because it's an interesting experiment and I'm glad they're doing something. Uh, but at the same time, that's not going to fix the free speech crisis because it is a cultural problem. There is a cultural problem where the newer generations in particular have very little attachment to the ideal of freedom of speech. And that is a problem that needs to be understood and addressed and challenged. I, I don't think introducing new rules that prevent student societies from from banning a UKIPper or whatever, I don't think that's going to do it. And in fact, it could cause a backlash and it could allow the no platformers to present themselves as victims, uh, as victims of, of, of the state, of big government and, and of having their own rights restricted. So I think there could be a backlash to that, unwitting, an unwitting backlash. I think that the better way to do it is, is the harder way to do it, which is simply to constantly make the argument for why freedom of speech is so important and why censorship is so unbelievably insulting and destructive and divisive. I think that's the only way we can do it. You know, there was an American Supreme Court justice uh, a hundred years ago or so who said that you can write down as many laws as you want about how important freedom of speech is. You can have the First Amendment, you can have all these constitutional guarantees of freedom of speech, but unless freedom of speech lives in the hearts and minds of ordinary people, then it's never really going to survive. And I think that's really true. Even if Britain were were to bring in a Bill of Rights uh, defending freedom of speech, that wouldn't solve our problem. It's got to be done at the cultural level, at the level of public engagement. We've got to keep making the argument that freedom, the great thing about freedom of speech is that it trusts you as a citizen to make up your own mind. Whereas the great insulting thing about censorship is that other people who are supposedly better than us cover our eyes, cover our ears and decide on our behalf what is right and wrong and what is true and false. I don't want other people to do that for me. I want to do that for myself even if I encounter offensive offensive ideas, even if I find myself being shocked and repulsed, I want to be a properly free citizen who makes up his own mind about the ideas swirling around in society. And anyone else who wants that too 
has got to really just argue for freedom of speech in all situations. Is is education the key? I mean, because I think the kind of debate that you're describing that you want to win there, the kind of shift in the culture that you want to see affected, is going to be very difficult to achieve while, and to go back to the language question, while we don't have the shared definitions, while you have these histrionic uh, phrases. For instance, you know, if, if, if at a university uh, campus, the students are saying, well, we support freedom of speech, but we don't want incitement to violence. And yet any kind of mildly conservative viewpoint is interpreted now as, in, as hate speech and incitement to violence. Or anyone who votes for UKIP is now a Nazi, you know, a, because people don't know what these words mean anymore. Actually, winning people round to your liberal point of view, I think is maybe near impossible. And so maybe it is about what happens in schools, perhaps. I'm just putting that out there. I think schools are really important because I think a lot of this comes from not all of it, but I think a lot of it comes from the way in which people are being socialised today. They're being socialised into a worldview that says offensive ideas can be very dangerous. Um, anything which damages your self-esteem is a problem. You've got to focus on the self, protect yourself from difficult ideas or uncomfortable feelings. There's a culture of narcissism, which Christopher Lash wrote about 40 years ago, um, which means that young people are being socialised into a culture which says you are fragile, you need to be protected, and uh, life in the safe space is preferable to life in the rough and tumble of public discussion. So that's happening in the education system, that's happening in universities. I think that's in, it's increasingly happening in workplaces too. When you leave university and go into some corporation, those ideas are quite strong there as well. So people have been socialised into an educational sphere and a work sphere in which fragility is talked about all the time and controversy or, or criticism is, is demonised. So, yes, I do think something can be done at the level of education. What that might be, I don't know. One thing that could be useful is, um, you know, teaching kids about the great heroic free speech figures of, of British history, of which there are many, John Milton, Thomas, May, uh, Thomas Paine, George Orwell, you know, people who made some of, John Stuart Mill, of course, people who made some of the most important arguments uh, ever about freedom of speech and why it must be valued and why it's the best way to organise society. Let's teach kids about that part of British history rather than constantly telling them that British history is just slavery, empire and colonialism and we should feel ashamed all the time. So educating kids about the wonderful freedom fighting of British history could help with this. But then the question, of course, just to be negative for a minute, you know, as Michael Gove referred to it, you know, the, the blob, the educational blob, it's, it's very entrenched. It's very difficult to shake. It has problematic ideas. And I think it's going to be it's going to take a long time to push back against that. There are some people who run free schools who are doing a very good job of pushing back against it. I think we need more government clout in terms of pushing back against it. But more broadly, the, whatever we can do to de-socialise young people and open their eyes to the more freedom loving aspects of life, I think that will be good. So on a, uh, again, on a practical level, in order to achieve that, there's some, something has to be done really from a governmental standpoint, because I often get the feeling, and I, you know, correct me if, if you think I'm wrong about this, but I get the feeling that our current Tory government doesn't really understand the extent of this problem. So we hear them making occasional refrains about this, where, for instance, we heard Kemi Badenoch in Parliament talking about how 
critical teaching of critical race theory in schools is against the law. But then the other week we find out that Brighton Council are implementing critical race theory in their schools with no sense that they're breaking the law and, 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 and no sense that there will be any repercussions. It seems to me that for all people accuse the Tories of waging a culture war, they're really not doing anywhere near enough to to oppose it. And, it, and and in terms of education, I mean, we had the National Education Union not very long ago uh, issue a, a report where they say there's an urgent need to decolonize schools at every level of the curriculum, including even the way desks are arranged, which apparently can be interpreted as racist. And more chillingly than that, the report says there's an urgent need to make sure that teachers are activists. In other words, and this is the biggest teaching union in the country and not a peep from the government. It's like they don't see that that's an issue. That's right. And um, I think this government has done really badly on this front and really badly at pushing back against the excesses of the educational blob or the woke mob or whoever else it might be. Uh, Kemi, Badenoch, Kemi Badenoch, I think, has done some great stuff. She's a, a, a very good voice in government. And if the rumours are true about her being education secretary soon, then I think that will be good. And there are some interesting voices. There are some people in government making good points. But it's just not enough. And, and what happens? Uh, Boris is basically a bottler. He bottles out of the culture war all the time. And we saw that in 2020 in particular with the post-George Floyd insanity where statues were being torn down and old comedy shows were being pushed down the memory hole because they had blackface or John Cleese making fun of Germans. And, you know, all these cultural, great cultural institutions essentially self-flagellating for the crimes of history, the British Museum, the Natural History Museum. There was a real orgy of self-loathing among sections of the elites. And it was such a perfect opportunity for someone like Boris to stand up and say, this is nonsense. You've got to stop it. This is actually a great country that would have connected so powerfully with vast swathes of the population. But he just doesn't have the bottle to do it. He keeps backing off from the culture war. And I think that you're right, there does need to be some government action on this. That's one of the clearest ways in which this stuff can be uh, held back and, the, and, and, and hopefully reversed at some point. But there's a really odd thing about Boris's government, which is that it's in power, but it's not really in control. And we have this very strange situation in Britain at the moment where we have a government elected by huge numbers of working class people and red wall voters, uh, primarily to make sure that Brexit happened and basically to hold to account the elites who had spent the past five years telling us that our votes were naff and they were going to be thrown in the dustbin of history. So this is a government put in power by ordinary people to keep in check the woke elites, essentially, the anti-democratic elites, the Remainer elites, and yet it still doesn't have the confidence to stand up to those elites to say, listen, we're in government now and things are going to change. Kids are going to be taught differently. Public discussion is going to take place in a different way. Like, why, have, why has no one in the government said anything about J.K. Rowling? I find this so shocking. This is, she is one of the most important cultural figures. She's globally known. She's loved across the world. Boris Johnson, as far as I know, hasn't said a single word about the fact that people say things to her like, suck my dick, or I'm going to rape you, or I'm going to send you a pipe bomb in the post. The fact that they haven't said anything about someone like that being subjected to things like that is really disturbing and probably a sign of how far the rot has gone in this government, sadly. Yeah.
And it's not just a, an occasional act of abuse. She gets these kind of messages and abuse every single day. And it's, it's, it's just completely overlooked. One of our major authors, and it's completely overlooked uh, in Parliament. And, and similarly, as you pointed out, with the, 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 the mania that we saw in terms of tearing down statues, there was even, a, I mean, even Emmanuel Macron made a statement saying, we don't do that in France. This isn't something that we do. And I, I find it baffling that the Tories can't see how popular electorally it would be if they took a stand on this, that actually, no, you don't get to trash our history, our civilization. That does, that's not going to happen. That's the most mystifying thing here, that they don't recognise that this would be popular, that they don't recognise that when Kemi Badenoch makes a comment about critical race theory in Parliament, that that really connects with people and it makes people think, right, here's someone finally speaking sense. They don't realise how much electoral purchase that kind of thing would have. Because, and I think one of the problems is that they're they very sensitive to the media. They're very sensitive to media coverage and media criticism. And sadly, a lot of the media is, uh, doesn't reflect public opinion particularly well and is often buried in a lot of this woke stuff that we've been talking about. So, uh, you know, if the government, if Boris were to stand up and say, Winston Churchill was a fabulous guy, stop tearing down statues and Britain is a great country, he knows there'd be hundreds and hundreds of think pieces saying, actually, Churchill was as bad as Hitler and you're a fascist too. So he, he feels very defensive about that possible criticism. He preempts media criticism all the time. And I think it allows him to, uh, uh, to, to control what he says in public. The other problem, of course, is that Boris is just not a particularly principled guy. I mean, this is what has become quite clear over the past since 2019. He's not a very principled guy. He, he changes with the wind. Someone said that his opinion is the opinion of the last person he spoke to. And that's a real problem because what we need in a moment like this, and I think what ordinary people are crying out for, and the election of 2019 made that clear, we need leaders who are willing to have to, to have and display some backbone, to side with reason against unreason, to defend freedom of speech and, and to uh, explain how it's a great British value and to push back against these people who constantly say we are a racist country full of racist people and if you disagree with us, you will be cancelled. We need leaders who will push back against that and I can't see them coming from the Conservative Party and they absolutely will not come from the Labour Party. Well, I think that's a very good note to end on. I can't decide whether that's optimistic or pessimistic, <laughs> but probably the latter. But uh, thank you so much for joining me today, Brendan O'Neill. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for joining me on the Free Speech Nation podcast. If you enjoyed the show, then please do like and subscribe and come back next week when I'll have another fantastic guest.